Amen. If you're able, please rise as we read God's Word together here this morning. From First Thess... That was easy for me to say. Thessalonians 5, um, just a few short verses here this morning, verses 16 to 18. Here's the reading of God's Word. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks for this, your word. Lord, I pray that you would take these words, carry them to the people that are gathered here in your name, that you would mold them and shape them, that you would use these words to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When Mrs. Klein told her first graders to draw a picture of something for which they were thankful, she thought how little these children who lived in a deteriorating neighborhood actually had to be thankful for. She knew that most of the class would draw pictures of turkey or some bountiful feast because that's what they expected her, or that's, that's what she expected them to draw. That was what they believed. What took Mrs. Klein aback was Douglas's picture. Douglas was so forlorn and likely to be found close in her shadow as they went outside for recess. Douglas' picture was something different. Douglas' drawing was simply this, a hand. Obviously a hand, but whose hand? The class was captivated by his image. I think it must be the hand of God that brings us food, said one student. A farmer, said another, because they grow the turkeys. It looks more like a policeman because they protect us. I think, said one girl who was always so serious, that it's supposed to be all of the hands that help us. But Douglas could only draw one of them. Mrs. Klein had almost forgotten Douglas because he was this small boy who was often in the shadows. She'd forgotten Douglas in her pleasure at finding the class so responsive. When she had the others at work on another project, she bent over to his desk and asked, Whose hand is that, Douglas? Douglas mumbled, It's yours, Mrs. Klein. Then Mrs. Klein recalled that she had taken Douglas by the hand from time to time. She often did that with the children. But that it should have meant so much to Douglas, she couldn't quite figure Perhaps she reflected that this was her thanksgiving and everybody's thanksgiving. Not the material things given to us, but the small ways that we give something to others. You probably know where that came from, or at least some of you do. Sounds like a Reader's Digest little story, right? Yes, it is. A short little story from Reader's Digest reminds us yet once again that As we enter into this time of the year, into this time of Thanksgiving, it's often the small things that have such a wonderful impact on who we are and and how we go about our lives. It's the small things that puts thankfulness on our hearts, even as pumpkin spice and turkeys enter our senses. Often in this time, we're softened by the things of gratitude and thanksgiving. So much so that I'm going to take the next few weeks leading up to Advent to Talk about what it means to be thankful, to have lives filled with gratitude. What does that look like, and how do we live these kind of lives? Not just to think about thankfulness, not just to think about Thanksgiving and turkey and pumpkin spice lattes, but about what it actually means 
to be full of thanks, to give thanks, to be thankful. It's not some kind of just emotion that I try to figure out or, or feel or, or want or desire, but actually to live a life of being thankful, to be full of thanks, to have our lives shaped and defined by thankfulness. This is the intent of today and the next few weeks. But the simple and profound story of this boy who was thankful for the hand of his teacher is powerful in the sense that we are reminded once again of how the smallest things in life can often have the greatest impact on our lives. Things like a hand to guide us. A warm embrace in the midst of suffering and and heartache. An unexpected gift that comes when we least expect it. These are the things that we're thankful for, but so often after we receive them, they just quickly go away, don't they? We forget about the understanding of, wow, that meant a lot to me. Life moves on, and and, and frankly, we just move on to the next thing, thankful that there's not another trial, or I don't need an embrace, or I don't need a gift. We're just thankful that we're alive and that we're able to keep moving on, and We forget about these small acts of kindness. The thankfulness fades. It fades into the background. And in some way, if if we do happen to look back and ponder that simple act of an embrace or a small gift or a guiding hand, if you're like me, we look back on those moments and we say, I deserve that hand because I was lost. I deserve that hug because I was hurting. They should have given me an embrace because that's what good friends do. And I would be disappointed if they didn't do that for me. I received that gift because I deserved that gift because I didn't have the money at that point in time and a good friend would do that to help out someone else. It was right for them to do that. It was good for them to do that. After all, they had the resources to do so. Why wouldn't they give that to me? Then we lose sight of the kindness and the gentleness provided to us. So what do we do with that? Where do we go? One social commentator puts this this way. It, gratefulness, is a foundational principle of many cultures and religion and also a principle of the law of attraction, What we focus on expands, and if we are grateful for our blessings in life, then we see life from from a different lens and are generally happier. Yeah, sounds pretty good. Another social commentator puts it this way. Gratitude says that I'm thankful for what I have. We need to be practicing gratitude. I'm thankful for what I've been given. Out of that gratitude births the opportunity, the desire, the discipline, and the likelihood that you will actually do the thing that you should do, even if you don't like them. Sounds pretty good. Sign me up for that kind of life. But it looks like the solution then is simple. According to the things I've just described to us and according to these social commentators, just have an attitude of gratitude and everything will be great. Just shape the way you're thinking. Just just change. Have an attitude of gratitude. We've all heard that many, many times. Right? Right? Change your attitude. Right? Yes and no. 
So what does it look like then to have a life that is thankful, full of thanks? That's the question that will drive today, next week, and the following weeks. What does it look like to have a life that is full of thanks? A life defined by thankfulness. That kind of life sounds really great to me. I want to live that kind of life. It sure would make things easier, right? There would be much less stress, less anxiety, less to worry about. If I could just be thankful for everything at all times, my life would be great. If I just had this attitude of gratitude, that would be wonderful. I'd walk out of here and everything would be great. Sign me up. Paul, in his first letter to the young church, plant in a northern city in Greece, a city called Thessalonica. It was a busy, bustling seaport of a city, and even to this day, Thessalonica, still called Thessalonica, is the second largest city in Greece, and still has a bustling seaport on the Aegean Sea. And there, Paul wrote to this little church plant, a little church plant who was going through some stuff. They were facing persecution. It wasn't terrible persecution, but persecution nonetheless is not fun to go through, is it? They faced real stark persecution. However, this church, and what we see, and if we were to read chapter 4, we would see that this church was experiencing some tragic deaths that occurred in their congregation, things that they weren't expecting, and they were forlorn. They were full of sorrow, full of worry, full of doubt. Is what Paul has been teaching us actually true? Is the resurrection true? Can we believe this? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead and give us hope? And so Paul writes them this letter to encourage them. To encourage them in the middle of their heartache, in the middle of their sorrow, in the middle of their hurting. They're desperate to be comforted, desperate to know grace and mercy in the middle of tremendous sorrow and tragedy. Paul instructs them in the hope that they have in Christ. He instructs them in the hope that they have in the resurrection. And I would encourage you to read 1 Thessalonians even this week. It's, it's a short book. It's only five chapters. And to see the totality of Paul's encouragement to this young church plant. But we parachuted in today at the end of the letter into Paul's final instructions given to this hurting church plant facing persecution and death, and sorrow, and tragedy. And he gives them some encouragement in his final instructions. And he, he does so in a peculiar kind of way, it seems to me. In his final instructions to this hurting and anxious congregation, he says, here's how you move forward. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. And I'm not sure about you, but in my middle, in, when I'm hurting and when I'm in sorrow and in pain, if a pastor would come to me and if I were to come to you while you're grieving someone that you love desperately, and I just say to you, in love, rejoice. In love, pray all the time. In love, give thanks. I think at first blush, we would all say to some degree, that's not very caring not very pastoral, Ryan. It seems a little abrasive. Nonetheless, Paul says with encouragement, rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. What does it look like to have a life that's thankful, full of grace, full of thanks? 
Paul gives us the answer here in 1 Thessalonians 5. A life that is thankful is a life that rejoices always. It's a life that prays always. It's a life that gives thanks always. There are really big commands given to us in the Bible. Some of those commands are difficult. Like, don't lie. That's a difficult command. Don't lie. Don't steal. That's a difficult command for some of us. Stay faithful to your spouse. That's a difficult task for some of us. Love God. Love others. Love your enemy. Difficult task. But some commands in Scripture cross the border from difficult to impossible. Like when Jesus says to us in uh, Matthew chapter 5, he says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's not difficult. That crosses the border, doesn't it? That crosses the border into impossibility. I, I can't be perfect. Neither can you. We all know it. Be perfect. And then we enter into 1 Thessalonians 5, into these few short verses, into 16 and 18. We encounter three more difficult commands. I want to put before you that these three commands, they cross the same border. They cross the border from difficulty into impossible. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. I know my life. I know most of your lives pretty well. And I know for a fact that y'all ain't rejoicing always, you ain't praying always, and you're not giving thanks always. Neither do I. So they go across the border from difficult to impossible. So what do we do with these impossible commands? If that's how we define a life that's thankful, full of thanks, we have these impossible commands, what do we do? How do I even begin to step foot out of this place here this morning and be encouraged to have a life that's thankful? What does it mean to be this kind of person? So together, I want us to discover the answers because there is an answer. And I hope by the end of the day, you are encouraged that you understand that perhaps maybe I am a person that's thankful. One of my favorite characters from a childhood um, story is Tigger. Mm -hmm. Tigger from A.A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. For some of you, that does not surprise you in any way, shape, or form. I know one person's chuckling, and he understands what I'm talking about. For some of you, this, this is just, okay, that's Ryan, right? So who is Tigger? Tigger is the one who always has a bounce in his step, always has a smile on his face, and never has a bad day, even when calamity is all around. Tigger bounces into a scene, and he says, hey, my name is Tigger, T-I-double-G-er, and he does it with a, a bounce in his step, right? And ta-ta, T-T-F-N, ta-ta for now, woo-hoo. We know Tiger. We know Tigger, don't we? We know Tiger too, but Tigger. Tigger's always bouncing. He's always got a smile on his face, and not even Rue can ruin his day. Does this what it looks like? Is this what it looks like? Is this what Paul means to rejoice always? 
that we have to be bouncing all the time like Tigger? That we just have to ta-ta for now, woohoo! Is that what we mean to rejoice always? That no matter the situation, we as Christians just put a smile on our face and say, it's all great, it's all good. Rejoice! Again, I say rejoice! We're told that too, aren't we? You know, the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. The shortest verse in the English Bible is John 11.35. What's that one? Jesus wept. Rejoice always, yet Jesus weeps. Seems to be a disconnect. Or maybe we just don't quite understand. Jesus was overcome with sadness and heartache because his friend Lazarus had died. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was terrified and and pleaded with the Lord, and sweat turned to blood as his face with the wrath of God being poured out upon him. Jesus was not Tigger in the Garden of Gethsemane, bouncing around with joy and rejoicing, was he? So how do we reconcile these two things? Rejoice always in weeping and fear. Sadness. Clearly, it's not the biblical framework then that we have to be happy all the time. We don't have to pretend that life is full of rainbows and butterflies at every corner. The mere fact that we have the letter to the church in Thessalonians speaks to this very thing. Here is this small church plant just getting going and they're hurting. Because people they know and love have died. Are we supposed to just put on a smiley face all the time? And pretend that everything is okay? Your own life is a testimony to this as well, isn't it? We're not always bouncing around. We don't always have a smile on our face pretending that things are wonderful and great. Our lives are testimony that God's people hurt. But moreover, Paul writes to the church in Rome to rejoice in our sufferings. I think, Ryan, that's not helping very much. So how is it that we're to rejoice always, to rejoice in our sufferings, even when we cry? How do we rejoice through tears? How do we rejoice through anxiety, through worry? through anger, disappointment, sin, and misery. Well, there must be something more to this than what initially meets the eye. There must be more to the command than just rejoice always. So what do we do? Let's look at another one of Paul's letters written to another church, the church in Philippi. In this letter, he says to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice Did you catch it there? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Did you catch it? The English teachers in my family, who most likely are what you're watching now or will watch later, will be happy to know that I'll talk about prepositional phrases every now and then. If you know what a prepositional phrase is, it's something that you can do to two bridges or two mountains, right? You can go over, around, under, beneath, between. That's what a preposition is. So there's a little prepositional phrase in Paul's letter to the Philippians that says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Did you catch the little phrase that you could do to two bridges? 
in the Lord. Now, if you know how to diagram sentences like I was taught in junior high, you would draw a little line and you would have a little prepositional phrase to point to the rejoicing. You'd write rejoice, then you'd write another line and you'd say, in the Lord. So how do we rejoice always? We rejoice always in the Lord. Rejoice always in the Lord. This is key to understanding what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica, the church in Philippi, the church in Rome, and the church in Arlington. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. How do we rejoice? We rejoice in the Lord. If we look back at our text this morning, he says the same thing. Rejoice always, and then skip down to the very end in verse 18. For this is the will of the Lord. How? In Christ Jesus. How do we rejoice? The same prepositional phase, phrase. In Christ Jesus, this is the will of the Lord. Oh, we should all breathe a sigh of relief at this point in time and think, it is impossible, but not in Christ. It's possible in Christ to rejoice always. It's impossible to be perfect because we're touched with sin and brokenness, isn't it? So we ask the question again, how do we have a life that is thankful? How do we have a life that rejoices always? It seems to me that we look at our lives and the lives of those in Scripture. Rejoicing is not limited to a feeling or an emotion or even obedience. It rejoices in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Being in Christ. The life that's full of thanks and rejoices always has a conscious and deliberate focus on the cross. That when our gaze is cast on the cross, then we understand the cost of grace and it begins to shape our lives. It doesn't wipe away the suffering. Jesus lamented on the cross he took the suffering. He took the sorrow. He didn't wipe it away at that point. He took it upon himself. He understands the suffering. Not only does he understand, but he promises that what? He will be with us. He will be with us in the sufferings. That he will be with us in the trial, in the tribulation as it's happening. We're not, happy, we're not happy for the sorrow. So when we say rejoice always, we don't say give me more sorrow so I can rejoice some more. Give me more pain so I can be happier more. What it's saying is in the middle of that, we look to the cross. We don't rejoice in the sorrow or the pain. We don't rejoice in ourselves or our obedience to, to be Tigger. Rejoice in what Jesus has accomplished and what he's done in Christ, in the Lord, we rejoice. So we don't long for bad things to happen. May it never be. May it never be. Rather, we rejoice because we know that Jesus fully understands. He understands who we are and he has conquered the enemy and he will never let us go. And so we don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend with our confessions. We don't have to pretend with our hurts, our pains, our sorrows. But quite the opposite. We acknowledge and confess because Jesus gets it and he has conquered that. 
And he takes it upon himself. And so we lay it at the feet of the foot of the cross. Because he understands. That then leads us to the next command, doesn't it? That leads us directly into the next impossible command. Not a difficult one, but an impossible one. Rejoice always, or in other words, rejoice in the cross always and what Jesus has done for you in the circumstance. And now the, the, the next command is pray always. And these things are so closely knitted together or, or similar in the, in the sense that I know for a fact I don't rejoice always and I don't pray always. So what do we do? And a lot of the principles are the same, so I, I'm not going to go through the whole thing all over again, but just know that this is what we are to do. How do we have a life that is defined and marked out as thankful? Paul tells the church in Thessalonica and the church at Arlington, pray always. How are we thankful? When we're praying all the time. If you're like me, you say, yeah, but. Yeah, I understand that you know that I need to pray, but life gets in the way. Rejoice always and pray always are impossible because life just simply gets in the way. But it is impossible in our own strength. However, the command still exists, doesn't it? The command is still there. The command is to pray always. We are to be a people that are constantly in prayer. But does it mean that we are to be praying at every waking moment of our lives? Yeah. It does. But it's impossible. Does it mean to be praying at every waking moment of our lives? Yeah. It's commanded by the Word of God that we do that. I can't. So what does this mean, and, and how then do I do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. But the same pattern exists that we must be in Christ. We must be in Christ in order for this to be our daily pattern. So because I touched on this already, I'm not going to go through the intimate details of it all over again. But I want to look really briefly, more at what it means to be in Christ. To help us understand what it means to rejoice always and to have us understand a little bit more what it means to pray always. This idea of being in Christ is a doctrine that's kind of in the shadows. We don't talk about it all that much. It's another one of those things where we think we understand and we just kind of let it go by the wayside and say, yeah, in Christ. Sweet. I'm good. I'm in Christ. Do we ever slow down and really ask the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? And I think in the Gospel of John and John 15, we have a better understanding of what it means to be in Christ. It's there in John 15 where Jesus gives us the illustration, the parable of the vine and the branches, right? Here's this vine and there's branches. We've all seen a vine with branches. Some of you may have cut some down yesterday as you prepare your houses for fall. There's a vine that gives the nourishment and the growth to the, to the rest of the plant, and these branches then come off of the vine and 
on those branches, there's fruit and things like that. But that branch needs the nourishment. It needs the, it needs the, the, the things of the vine in order to produce this fruit. So Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. To be in Christ means that we are connected to the vine. Makes sense. It's Jesus that gives us life. It's, it's him who gives us the nourishment. It's, it's him who actually bears the fruit because he's the source of life. He's the source of our vitality. We exist because he exists. We can't exist outside the vine. You have a branch fall off your tree in your yard, which probably a lot of you picked those up yesterday too. When they fall off, they die. They're they're dead. They, They can't survive. They need the vine. We exist because he exists. We bear fruit because he gives us the ability to do so. But in order to understand this even more and to understand what it means to pray and rejoice always, I want to go to another part of John, to John chapter 10. You would see the key elements in our prayer life and being in Christ. Jesus says that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. And that sheep gathers his sheep to himself, and the sheep, they know his voice, and he knows them. It's a wonderful picture that Jesus paints for us here. Jesus says in verses 27 to 28 that they come to him because they know his voice. And these are words that comfort me, I promise you, on a daily basis. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I know them, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Being in Christ is understanding that he is the one holding on to us. It's not the branch's responsibility to stay attached. The branch clings to the vine based on the vine attaching itself to the branch, growing out of the vine. He knows us. He already knows our prayers. He knows what we need before we even think of it. He knows our needs before we even need the need. He already knows our thoughts. He knows our joys. He knows our struggle. He already knows. And he invites us in to know him. And so praying always depends on the reality that we cannot be separated from the Lord. Praying always means being connected to the Lord at all times. It's not that you have to pray every single second of every single day, but it means to remain in Christ. And we remain in Christ, not on your obedience, not on your strength, not on your bootstraps, but in the fact that Jesus holds us fast because he's the vine and we're the branches. Praying always means being in Christ. And where we understand afresh then is the cost that it took in order for us to be brought into the sheepfold. This then stirs our hearts to pray without ceasing in all circumstances of life. Happiness, sorrow, tears, laughter. To have a life that is thankful and lives of gratitude, we rejoice always, we pray always, and we also give thanks always. Now that sounds like something your 10th grade English teacher would also tell you. Not only will your 8th grade teacher teach you prepositional phrases, but your 10th grade teacher will tell you in your rhetoric classes, 
you can't answer a question with a question. Right? So what does it mean to give thanks? Give thanks. Right? Or even as we saw in a children's, a children's uh, message last week, Sunday, my, my wonderful daughter, she's in Sunday school with her mom right now, but we asked, you know, what, what, is, what does it mean to be tempted? Or, or what is temptation? Right? I asked that question. What is temptation? And the response, the response was, to be tempted. You can't do that. That's not good logic. It's not good rhetoric. It's just, it's not how you form an argument. And here your pastor is saying, what does temptation mean? It means to be tempted. What does it mean to give thanks? Or to be thankful, it means to, to give thanks. It's exactly what Paul is saying to us. To have a life full of thanks and gratitude, we're to rejoice, we're to pray, and we're to give thanks. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be thankful for us to give thanks? To live a life that is thankful is exactly that. To be thankful. We use this phrase, give thanks, with the best of intentions, don't we? It's a, it's a really great phrase, and we use it this time of year all the time, and, and one that we should absolutely live by, to be ones that give thanks. But let's slow down for just a, a brief moment here and explore what this means, especially in the light of what we've just talked about in the last two commands, to rejoice and to pray always. Paul says to also give thanks always, another impossible command, yet a command nonetheless. But this is the very heart. This is the very heart of what it means to have a thankful life. The original word that Paul uses in the Greek is, is the word euchariste. And I could preach a whole sermon just on that word if you would let me, but we're not going to do that this morning. But it's the word that we get eucharist from, right? It doesn't take a Greek scholar to figure that out. Euchariste and eucharist, pretty similar words, Right? So in the Greek, there's all kinds of ways to decline the word and to do all these things. But the stem of the word, or the word eucharistic, euchariste comes from, is the word charis, which can be translated in a couple of different ways. Charis is often used in the New Testament as grace, but it's also translated as thanks. And when now you combine that word and you put a, a verb attached to that word, not just charis, but euchariste. Are you following with me? Are you tracking with, my, with your Greek 101 here? You add a verb to that. What Paul is saying to his church in Thessalonica is euchariste. You are to be about giving thanks on an ongoing basis. We're to be about giving thanks. What does that mean? We give our thanks away. Or we're to do it all the time. We don't keep it for ourselves. We give it away. The key is that verb phrase about giving it away. What does it mean to live a life that is thankful? It means that we're not about ourselves. Love the Lord our God. Love our neighbor. Love our enemy. Impossible. But commands. This then takes us to another one of Paul's letters, and then it takes us to the cross. We see in Romans 5 that we were once enemies of our God. In our sin and misery, we are told that we are enemies of God. And while we were sinners, we were reconciled to him through the death of the Son, Jesus Christ. To give thanks always and to live a life that is thankful means to have a life full of the grace of Jesus Christ. 
I don't know any other way to put that before you than to say that. A life that is thankful is a life that understands grace. To understand that I, in my sin and misery, am an enemy of God. I, in my sin and misery, am an enemy of God. In my sin and misery, I deserve just judgment and wrath. In my sin and misery, I am an enemy of God. What does it look like to rejoice always, to pray always, and to give thanks always? Starts there. And then it moves to the cross. While I was still a sinner, while I was an enemy, Jesus died for me. That strips away our pride. Strips away our arrogance. Strips away our entitlement. Our selfishness. And it shapes our hearts. It molds our lives. to know that Jesus went to the cross to save me so that my sin would be wiped away, that my tears would be wiped away. And friends, when we begin to understand that reality, it's then and only then when we can rejoice always, when we can pray always, and we give thanks always because of what He has done for you. What does it mean to live a thankful life? It means to be full of the grace of Jesus Christ. That while I was a sinner, He died for me. This is a life of gratitude. This is a thankful life. Rejoice always. Pray always. Give thanks always. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, move in us to be full of thanks. Move in us to rejoice and to pray and to give thanks always because of what you have done for us. And so, Lord, as we come to this table now,
May our hearts be pierced because your hands were pierced. May our souls be pierced because your feet were pierced. May we be raised up because you rose from the dead. And so may we remember the cost of our salvation. May we remember your love and your grace stirring us to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.